Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chamberlain. Food and Faith Podcast community. I'm glad to be with you today. It's Anna and Sam. And our guest today is Amelia Richardson Dress. Amelia is the author of The Hopeful Family, Raising Resilient Children in Uncertain Times, which feels like raising humans. I mean, just being human right now in uncertain times. I'm hoping that regardless of whether you're a parent or not, uh, I think there'll be things in this conversation that will... Um, We'll support you. Um, Amelia writes about education, parenting, and contemplative spirituality. She's also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. So Sam is very happy. I win again, Anna. Team UCC. <laughs> this is, that, is this the third UCC person we've had on in the last like month, Sam? It's, I don't know that any other podcast in the world has had three UCC folks on it in this span. And that includes UCC podcasts. Hmm. I will just say though that this is a guest that I invited to be on the podcast. So I don't know what that does for you, but uh, that's there, there, there you go. Uh, Sam is, is. Uh, I'm beaming. I'm beaming. Happy. I'm absolutely thrilled. <laughs> um, Amelia serves as the minister for community faith formation at First Congregational Church, uh, United Church of Christ in Longmont, Colorado, which Amelia, I didn't realize until I read your bio when you sent it. I lived in Longmont for seven and a half years and I love that. I love that town and that place. So um, Sam, you did not get the Maryland geography here. Yeah. Look, I'll, UCC, I'll split it with you. I'll but like, I'll, but I'll I get the, I get the, I get the geography. So we're so glad to have you on today. Amelia. <laughs> Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. And so um, it really is our joy to have you on. And thank you so much for making some time. And congratulations. Um, Anna just went through the process of writing a book. I have not written a book, but living vicariously through Anna, I've learned what that process is like. Um, so as as you come to these last days of it being released, just con con congratulations and well done. I know that that is a long and involved process. So, And we're really grateful to get to talk about that book with you. So thank you for coming on. So we want to begin where we always begin, um, just orienting ourselves to our guests, to you, getting to know you a little bit. And so the way we like to do that is to ask a little bit about your geography. And what we mean by that is however you might understand it. That is the land, the people, the food, the culture um, that has shaped you into the person that brings you um, to the place where you are today. And so if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about your geography and how that has shaped you. Yeah, I love this question. I have to tell you that when I was working on starting our environmental justice ministry team here uh, in Longmont at the church I'm serving, I used this question at one of our first meetings because I just think it's so powerful and so rich. Um, and I think that part of the reason that I do resonate so much with the question is that I grew up in a way where I was really connected with place. Um, I grew up in Western Colorado, so I'm, I'm near Longmont now. I grew up in a tiny town called Newcastle that nobody has ever heard of. Uh, the closest kind of place people might have heard of is Glenwood Springs. It's got a little bit of a tourist draw um, there. And it's an area where uh, parts of my family, on one side of my family, they've been there for generations. And so um, 
other parts of my family have these also strong generational ties to Colorado. So I just grew up with this sense that I was really being shaped by the land and, and the stories and kind of this sense that uh, land was synonymous with family mm. and with connection. Mm. And so that was really uh, powerful for me as a way to grow up. That's kind of an idyllic way to grow up. And it was also really powerful in how it shaped me and how I look at geography um, myself now. And just some of the questions that I think that we need to be asking more about in terms of who has that kind of experience growing up and, and how is land used and who gets to decide how it's used um, and all those kinds of things that can be tied around land and identity. So that's one way that but growing up with that kind of geography shaped me. Um, and then I got married. My husband was in the Navy. We lived on the East Coast for quite a while. I actually went to seminary out there, um, served a oh, first right. church out there, loved it. Uh, we lived in Newport News. I went to seminary in Richmond and oh. the church that I served was in Suffolk. Uh, very good. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was also wonderful. We knew we would want to come back to Colorado, um, but it was great to be there. And it was also amazing to see the cultural shift around food. And just, you know, I remember going and, and being invited to this barbecue. And here in Colorado, a barbecue is like a hamburger on a grill. And it is a whole different thing um, for them. And then we'd have these potlucks where uh, mostly the women would sign up and it was everybody was going to bring salads and there was not like a vegetable in sight. So <laughs> it was so, um, it was wonderful. Like I'm laughing at it, but also because it was just so neat to see that despite all the mobility in our culture and all the ways we move around, we've still retained some of these regional um customs and recipes and things that really connect people to the food. And then you were, um, and then you returned to Colorado um, and took a position as a pastor and yeah. Um, and just wondering how that, what that journey looked like for you and the community that you find yourself in now. Yeah. Um, as I said, I, we knew, we knew that we would want to move to move back to Colorado once my husband got out of the Navy and uh, we had our daughter. Um, I sometimes say that's, that's sort of the last thing in our lives that went according to plan. Like he got out of the Navy, we had our daughter, we moved back to Colorado. And then from there, it was just adulthood and all of the things that, that <laughs> unfold. But um, we, we lived for a bit in Western Colorado, closer to where my family is. And during that time, I worked actually Mostly, I was working for the Department of Human Services uh, for one of the counties there, doing some kind of liaison work and intervention work with preschools, and then also some um, interim and kind of sabbatical renewal ministry for uh, a variety of denominational churches over there, which was amazing. Um, I loved that time. It was uh, just an incredible place to have the first several years of our daughter's lives. Uh, and then we needed to be in the eastern part of the state where there were more job opportunities um, for both of us. And so we are, we're here now. Um, I took this position um, 
this position unfolded at UCC Longmont in a wonderful way. And, and I've enjoyed being here. I've been here five years uh, now, um, almost exactly. Well, and then somehow in all of your pastoring and parenting and because you've managed to write a book. So um, I think any of us who've gotten to this point in a, in a book journey, there had to be a big why. There had to be something that was burning in you to um, get to the computer every day for weeks and months and years, maybe on end, and um, to find publishers and the whole process. So, so why, why the hopeful family? Why did this book come into being? Yeah, I like so many writers, I process a lot by writing. And so writing's always been a part of what I have done, but certainly writing a book was, was a different question. And it was really driven by um, just this uh, kind of existential question of, of where are we in the world? What is happening? Feeling that as a parent myself, um, how do we raise children when things feel very uncertain in a lot of different ways? And then hearing that question from parents as well as from kids, um, because I do get to work with kids still, which is really one of the things I love about this position. I've found that when we open up these, just this space for them to explore and, and really give them the opportunity to name some of the things they're experiencing, they really are experiencing um, at sometimes this depth of uncertainty about uh, climate change, about um, just in addition to day-to-day -day <laughs> anxieties. And now we have the pandemic. And so that's a whole, whole host of new anxieties. And so I really went into it with uh, pre-pandemic, the sense that people were wrestling with what does hope look like when we don't know what the future holds um, and, and wanting to wrestle with that a bit myself. So what have you seen um, in children as you've looked through this? Because as a parent myself, and I've got my oldest is about to become a teenager. So I've watched a little bit, you know, of, of the natural anxieties and tensions that the children go through emerge over the course of his life and, and my daughter's lives. Um, but as I'm wrapped up in the middle of being a parent, COVID happens. And it's hard for me sometimes as a parent to sort out what is sort of the natural cultural stresses that are on our kids over and against what COVID has actually introduced over and, over and above that. And so sometimes it's hard for me to know like what, what additional pressures has COVID brought on our children? And I just wonder if, if, if you've collected any data on just how COVID has actually ramped up the anxiety and the uncertainty that 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 children are feeling. Um, because for me, for me as a parent, it's kind of hard to figure that out. It's just day to day raising my kids. Yeah, it is. I am in that with you. My daughter is thirteen, and she's in seventh grade. And sometimes we have this, um, you know. And I'm like, is how much of this is just normal? And like seventh grade is hard for a, a lot of kids. It's an absolute mess. It's a mess. <laughs> That's right, no yeah. matter what's happening. And so now you've got this pandemic and you're stuck at home with your parents all the time and school's online and, you know, so it is hard to weigh out what is kind of normal and what is, is this moment. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, we probably won't be able to tell until we look back on it. 
But I do think that's where it's so important that we're kind of able to anchor that a little bit for kids, you know, to let them know that um, there is an end. I mean, in seventh grade, I didn't think seventh grade would ever end. It felt so horrible. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that that seemed like that was going to be my whole life was seventh grade. And so if you're also navigating that and navigating this pandemic, just some of that perspective that adults bring of not minimizing it, not like, oh, it's fine, but you know, like, okay, this, there's an end point (laughs) to this. And this is what it feels like now. But I definitely hear kids expressing all of the things adults are expressing. It's lonely. It's, um, you're sick of your family, but you're also grateful for your family. (laughs) You know, it's, it's hard. We don't have a a concrete ending. So it's not like we're marking days off the calendar. So that's hard. Um, I definitely do hear kids wrestling with all of those things too. I wish this wasn't a podcast because if it was video, our listeners could see all of our faces when we mentioned seventh grade, just get this look of um, existential <laughs> horror as we try to sort this out. But, and, and, but I think, I, I think the point you raise is really, really interesting in that, um, that they're going through what, what we're going through. And as I read your book, um, which was aimed towards families and has a certain feel of, of thinking about children in, in particular, I found it very much speaking to me and in my particular, you know, just as I, as I get up and go to work and all the extra stresses that come with, I mean, I happen to be a pastor, you know, but I, all the extra stresses that come with that, that was one of the things that really stuck out to me is like, oh, wow, these are practices that aren't just for my children. They're practices for me as well. And there felt like some real commonality there that we're not really talking about something that's unique to kids. We're talking about the human condition and that there's some role to play about uh, around, you know, bringing kids into, into those much larger conversations just that like did my heart good to hear <laughs> because that would have been my big hope for that book. <laughs> well, and I think that one of the things that um, I want to dig into a little more is your chapter on food and eating. And I think uh, similarly to what Sam said, it, there's such crossover of what is right for children is, is for adults in terms of um, the ways that, that we can be connected and the ways that we can be more mindful. Um, I was fairly struck by your uh, like data points around eating regular um, family dinners together. And just thinking, you know, that, that's something that we strive for in our, you know, household of two adults is, and, it, and it, it makes a difference. Like it really makes a difference when we can sit down and say a blessing and light a candle and, you know, connect at the end of the day. And, um, and yet it's so hard. It's so easy. It's just so easy to let these rituals and these habits, um, go. And so, um, I would love, there's so much in this chapter, just in the chapter on eating It's so packed, but, um, I would love to get in a little more about like, what, what did you discover about how, eating together or being mindful about our eating actually changes things for, for a child or for a family. Um, what, what are some of the big takeaways for, from you? So, you know, your book has not come out yet. So our listeners have not read it yet. <laughs> so give them a little teaser and, and, then, and then they'll get to order it and, okay. uh, and hear more. Um, 
I think so much of what you said, Anna, really does encapsulate a lot of that, that meals are so important and they are such amazing, just they can be such amazing touchstones throughout our day. Um, and these, these points of connection and coming back to that again, I've started to think of like this COVID pandemic time as like my laboratory for raising hopeful children, you know, it, um, because I've had to kind of experiment with what this really looks like in a hard situation. And that meals really became something we came back to as a family. And it was interesting how even with us all being home, it was easy to let that slip because we were all off in our own worlds and we felt like we were together like all the time. Um, and yet we weren't, we were just in the same house all the time. And so pulling back to having uh, some meals together every day, I noticed a marked difference uh, for me, for my relationship with my husband, for just my daughter and kind of how she was weathering things. So it was interesting to see that uh, again in a different way and really see those statistics kind of come to life in front of me. So yeah, the statistics around eating together are just amazing in terms of how kids who eat regularly with their families have better eating habits often, but also just uh, better resiliency. They tend to have lower rates of anxiety and depression. Um, kind of better coping strategies for things as they arise. And that's like just eating together. So a lot of my research came out of um, other secular projects looking at this. Uh, when you start to add in like these complex rituals that uh, so many religious traditions have, not complex as in hard to do, complex as in rich uh, rituals that religious traditions have, it just seems like it's such uh, a powerful um, way to kind of embody this theology for kids that we are connected, um, we are blessed, it's a time of gratitude, um, you know, we're all in this together. One of the things that really struck me and I was super interested in um, because it echoed for me another one of my, fam my favorite authors, which is uh, Wendell Berry. You talk a lot about the Industrial Revolution and how the changes that happen culturally and scientifically and just the things, the things that were a part of that, how that has ultimately filtered down to how we think about our mealtime. And sometimes I don't know that we always connect our larger cultural movements to how they, how they actually impact what happens inside of our homes. And this was, and this was one of the places where, as a as a pastor, as somebody who thinks about what it means to live well, um, you really did a powerful diagnosis of how industrialized thinking, if 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 I can use that term, um, has shaped how we think about meals. And so, I would love for you as a way of of you know, promoting the book because because this point is so like this point was worth was worth is worth the price of the book for me anyway like right off the top like like what happens in the industrial revolution and what happens as we start talking about nutrition as a science that ultimately has led to a breakdown at times of our family tables yeah that was um an aha moment for me as i was digging into really i was starting with this question of well, we know it's good for us to eat together. Why is it so hard? And so yeah. then I started doing this, like looking back of how we have looked at food. And um, 
one of the things, I mean, there's a couple things then that industrialization uh, that happens in that time period. So one of them is we have this um, real uh, capacity and desire for efficiency. And we really kind of romanticize uh, machines and all of the things that machines can do. So that impacts us in a couple ways. And one of the things that I think happened at that, that time and, and probably others do as well is um, we started having this kind of metaphor for food that it was like fuel for our body, um, which there were other ways in which we had ideas of fuel before that. I mean, you might fuel a fire, you know, that kind of thing, but the sense that fuel is what made you go, uh, made you efficient, made you able to do things. And I think that that there might that might have helped with this disconnect between all the spiritual uh, kind of points that food might have for us. And then I think it it also our our way of producing food shifted in that time too. And so it was like this combination of just uh, putting efficiency over some of these other values that we might have had and that I think we are reclaiming. I was really struck by that as well and struck by how just the shift between food being fuel and food being, yes, something that fuels our body, but also something that is part of our our spirits and our connection with other people. And, and I really loved how you connected that also to being interconnected in a broader way and using the family dinner table as a place of connection, but also of justice. And that it's a time for that conversation about where does our food come from? Um, you know, that beautiful exercise of like kind of tracing it and like, where's the who who grew it but also who, like, who packaged it who sold it um and then you reference one of my favorite children's books the curious garden um do you know this one sam i do actually yeah i love yeah. it it's so just it's just so lovely so uh we're going on a little like children's book kick on the pod uh right now we had um laura uh allery on uh last week talking about her book um what Larry grew in his garden and uh, which is right next to the, on the shelf to the curious garden <laughs> by Peter Brown. But anyway, I mean, it's, you have this beautiful description of this book where people are, you know, gardens start to pop up over this abandoned um, railroad track and then across the city. And, and then your reference to um, Ron Finley, who is a, you know, a, a hero in the, in the growing food world. Um, but just this idea that all that can echo out from the family dinner table. So it's not just about what has come to the table. I mean, there's something about being interconnected that something comes, all this, these different pieces of food come to the table and we can recognize that. But it's also that the conversations that happen there then actually shift and can change the way that you then go back out into the world as a child, as a family, as an adult, and that it might mean that you change how you're purchasing food or growing the food, or it can connect to that mindfulness of, you know, we, I mean, this pod, we probably, people are tired of hearing about how 
committed we are to getting everyone's hands in the dirt. <laughs> you know, like there's something about that actual growing of our own food and growing food to share with others um, that really changes things. And then to intersect that also with the faith component, um, I, I just think it's a very beautiful interweaving of how we trace the threads to the table, something is born and grown there and then it, it goes back out again and then you know there's this 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 uh circulatory i'm moving my hands our listeners can't see me moving my hands but <laughs> um, there's a circulatory um system that's going on there um so i'm not really sure what the question is in that but i was just very i had some kind of visceral and um images that come to mind as i was reading thinking about this the richness of the table um, as a place in the home. And then of course, connected to the spiritual piece and how food is so integral to many religious traditions, maybe all religious traditions. Um, and in the Christian tradition, the, the table is that, is that place of, of connection in there as well. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you wanna say more about how, the, how that intersects for you. Yeah, I think that part of um, what I'm hearing as you say that is one of the things that I was um, exploring is like this interweaving. I'm also going to move my hands so <laughs> listeners can also Very imagine that. Um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we have the most animated podcast. Uh, that there's this interweaving of kind of um, outward hope and inward hope. Mm -hmm. And I think that some of this that we're talking about with meals kind of illustrates that, that there's this sense that hope is something that we experience and uh, something that's um, within us, but there's also this sense that hope affects how we are out in the world. And so the meals chapter is really one of the chapters where I first kind of was experiencing that for myself. Like, oh, this is about connecting and it's about connecting uh, with each other, but it's also about connecting our inner selves with our outer lives. And so um, having one place, you know, the table where that starts to happen is, is just so powerful and, and a gift. Uh, for families and kids, I think. And it feels so obvious, like, but it's, but it's, it's like this, 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 such this simple thing, you know, and this almost pulls on this fuel idea, like this simple idea of eating, which we do, you know, it, presuming we can multiple times a day feels so obvious. And like, well, what else functions in that way in our lives? And I haven't come up with a good answer for that. And that's why the table continues to be this mystery, this super simple thing that always has another layer to it that I didn't expect. And that's that's what I really hear unfolding out of the book is, and your writing style just mirrors this so beautifully. It's just, it's it's a simple, it's a simple way of communicating that all of a sudden unfolds these these myriads of truth. And I, I just really enjoy that about, about this chapter. And it, it, it feels like it was a process of discovery for you as well. Yeah, it was, and, and a, a joy to work through and to um, write on. And so as a, 
as a dad um, who's smack dab in the middle of this, um, one of the I'm 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 going to go full out full revelation here and say as even as a pastor, sometimes paying attention to the spirituality of our most basic rhythms in our household gets to be a challenge at times. Um, and sometimes I find myself sort of wanting to shake my head a little bit and just be like, wait a second, what is what is going on here? Like, what is what is happening? And how do we think carefully about the spirituality that happens within our homes? I doubt I'm the only um, person who at times gets kind of lost in the weeds, particularly in this COVID time where so much is bombarding us. And there's so there's just so many added layers to what life just just to do the basic realities of life. And so one of the things that I wanted to ask is the book lays out all these beautiful examples of the way spirituality is connected to our tables um, inside the Christian tradition and a myriad of others. And that's one of the things I, it was a real process of discovery to read about other practices that maybe I wasn't so familiar with. Um, but for a family who's starting out thinking about this, for a family who maybe hasn't practiced family spirituality um, for some time or maybe ever, what are some of just the basic first steps that they can take in thinking about this? Whether that is a brand new family that has, you know, maybe has a brand new child or a brand new addition and is trying to figure out what those first steps look like, or someone like me who's halfway, who's halfway home in terms of raising our children and yet still is looking for, you know, how do I parent my kids in this season of their life? What are some first steps that they can take? Yeah, I, I really encourage people to just start anywhere. Um, and I think that comes out of my own experience of feeling like I needed to have the whole thing laid out. And this is exactly what our spiritual life at home was going to look like. And I was always going to do it just right. And so I'm so glad, Sam, that I'm not the only pastor who struggles with that at home. Yeah, I was going to do it perfect. And then um, I didn't. But any, yeah. <laughs> it is hard. And so I, I think there's part of that too, just recognizing um, it, it is a challenge and these spiritual practices continue to be talked about because they are both hard and meaningful. And so anything that we can do to kind of get some grounding is great and a fine place to start. I do really uh, think that meals um, together, and, and that might be two things. That might be any meal, because we focus on dinner, but maybe it's not dinner for your family. And right now in this COVID time, it's um, sometimes it's like a random snack in the middle of the day, <laughs> you know, that we all sit down and we have together. So I think letting go of the sense that it has to be one particular meal is, is one starting place. I also think um, starting with meals actually is really a good one because I think all of the other spiritual practices, at least of the nine I talked about, tie back to meals in some way. And so um, if you, if you kind of start with having a meal together a couple times a week, and maybe you say a blessing before that meal, you are well on your way to developing some some spiritual practices and some grounding you can play with. Mm. Appreciate that. And I love just the idea of start somewhere. And it's such a good reminder, especially right now, that there there are many different meals. It's not just dinner. <laughs> you know, my spouse yeah. and I have like a great Saturday morning breakfast 
tradition right now in the pandemic. And, you know, there's things that you can do that, yeah, that um, bring us to that. Yeah, so breakfast I, is way I, underrated. <laughs> way <laughs> underrated is family meal time. I know, right? <laughs> um, and on Sunday morning, you know, for the non-pastor families, a lot, I, I just, I see a some of my uh, congregation members, they have breakfast during church on the Sunday morning now because they're on their couch. They're in their dining room, in the living room. I know, not us, not us, Sam. We can't do that. But well, other you know, you know, I'm actually, I'm, 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 I'm going to jump in there. Like one of the things that I expected as a pastor was that the church was going to create just the, the process of living my entire life within the confines of the culture of the church, wherever I found it. I expected that culture to just do a very natural and easy job of just shaping me into this perfect little Christian human. Um, and what I found is that that is not the case. Like that church offers the same pressures, church offers the same um Sometimes church goes sideways at times in pushing us towards our worst selves. I mean, for me, uh, who can be a workaholic, church will reward my workaholism to the detriment of my family every day of the week and twice on Sundays. And so, so even for those of us who are deeply ingrained in religious life, um, sometimes even that religious life needs to be questioned and thought about so that we can get back to a place of handing down a better spirituality and a healthier spirituality to those that come after us, whether that's our, our parishioners or our own families. Yeah, I think that is so true. And I resonate too with that uh, belief or that hope that like having church be my career would um, make it easier to be a spiritual person in the world. And it turns out it's hard <laughs> no matter what your career is. Yeah, that's right. We all have on that journey. So we have obviously focused primarily on this chapter on eating because this is a food and faith podcast, but there are eight other chapters. Do you want to just really briefly give an overview of the rest of the book, Amelia? So our listeners know that there there's more to it than, than food. <laughs> yeah, so in the course of looking at how we build these lives that shape kids for resilience, what I ended up shaping um, my ideas around was traditional Christian um, practices. And I, I think I used this phrase once already on the podcast because it really is how I think about these as embodied theology. They're a way that we are, we are shaping our lives so that our lives reflect what we believe in um, and what we hope to believe in. You know, sometimes uh, we're not shaping things as much as they are shaping us, or there's at least a give and take. So I looked at um, Sabbath and the practice of meaningful rest, uh, forgiveness. Um, boy, I'm trying to run through like my list of, <laughs> of chapters and how they connected, which I would not have thought ever went out of my head after the process of of writing this book for several months. <laughs> but no, but for your family, um, you had to put them out of your head. <laughs> I, I did. <laughs> I did. So uh, the practice of blessing, which I chose on purpose instead of prayer, um, as kind of looking at a, a different way of, of being prayerful, but through this uh, particular lens. Um, boy, what? What else did I talk about? Generosity. Gratitude. What's that? Hospitality. Yes. Generosity, <laughs> hospitality, gratitude. I was just getting to like that section in the, <laughs> like my mental field of, of how I had those organized. 
so yeah, so just looking at these nine practices and, and how they shape us. Um, and I really appreciate the point that was raised earlier that these are really family practices. And I think that also takes some of the sense of pressure off of parents that we're not teaching this to our kids. We're learning that alongside them. And so we will all be formed by this together. And I think that's why we don't have to do it perfect every time. And I think that's why we don't have to have all of the answers to all of the big questions of faith. So, you know, even if you're a family who's not in a religious community every week, these spiritual practices can still be ways that you are feeding your child and your, yourself uh, spiritually. Beautiful. Well, there's so much hope in here, this book and in speaking to you and um, hope in a time of anxiety, something that feels a particularly precious right now. Um, but we do end our podcast by asking you what gives you hope. So this is not the kind of hope that glosses over the struggles and challenges in the world, but it's the hope that takes us through and that sustains us. So what's giving you hope today? Yeah, I am. Um, I find a lot of hope in the ways that I see people being inspired to live well, and to live out their beliefs in the world. And I've really seen that um, in this time, as as hard as it is, and that feels hopeful to me, uh, that that we might come out of this time with a deeper sense that we can take care of each other and that we want to take care of each other. Um, and recognizing of course, that, that there has been other things that have not, um, people don't always lean into that hopeful side and, but there are enough that I think are, there's enough of a sense that there is goodness in the world and that we can be working towards that goodness that we are overcoming some real challenges. Um, so that brings me a lot of hope. I am also really just um, deeply anchored in this hope that's present in the Christian story. And uh, the sense that God is with us and working with us and not, I, I, I really love the nuance of this question that it's not like an easy hope not like a tamp down all your worries hope. It's not a God's in control, so just do whatever you want hope, but this real grounded hope that, that we can um, be working alongside this creative force for good. And I know that's like a lot of lofty pastor words, <laughs> but it, it really is the place that I find my spirit fed. And, um, and it, even though I'm saying that now as though uh, I found that in the Bible and then I lived it, um, I actually experienced it and then found that the Christian tradition had words for that. And so that way of framing life and just finding myself connected with this story of hopefulness um, is really where I feel grounded and find hope for the future. Yeah, no, that's powerful. Like I've never felt closer to Mary and Joseph than I have this Advent, just with the anticipation and uncertainty around everything. So finding, 
and that's what this book, as I went through it, was all about is being grounded in some of those things, which we knew were always there and always finding life, um, new life coming out of those things. So just beautifully said. And it occurs to me, though, we always say we end the show with hope. We don't. We end it with shameless self-promotion. And true. we actively encourage that. And so, <laughs> Amelia, we want folks to buy your book. We want folks to engage with you. We want folks to engage um, wherever your work is um, and, and to have you contribute to their spirituality and perhaps to be able to reach out to you as, as they engage your work. And so what are some of the ways that, that they can do that? Thank you. Thanks for the uh, opportunity for shameless self-promotion. I, I appreciate it <laughs> because it doesn't come easily to me. So I'm so glad to just be asked. Um, online, you can find me at ameliadress.com. Uh, um, I, I know you all will be putting those things in, in show notes too. So I'll just save that. I'll just take over your job and do that announcement for you. Um, the book is published by Church Publishing, and you can get it through their website. Also, you can pre-order there. It may be a little faster than some other booksellers uh, since it's on pre-order right now. That's kind of the word I'm getting from people, uh, but you can certainly get it other places. I really love to connect with people, so I would just be thrilled to have people find me online and, and send me a message and, and really engage around the work in whatever way it's, it's inspiring. Um, or questions that, that it prompts. Um, I do have on the topic of shameless self-promotion, I do have right now for um, pre-orders because I do work a lot with uh, pastors and Christian educators. I'm putting together like this little series of videos that goes along with the book that would be really great for group studies. Um, and so I'm offering those for pre-orders and the catches you have to email me and tell me that you pre-ordered it because we don't actually have the data to like track pre-orders, which is fantastic for your data privacy. And it also means like you do have to let me know that you um, bought the book and, and then I will get you those videos in the hopes that that's hope, uh, helpful to you. Um, especially, you know, I was looking at it. I'll be using them myself too, because we'll be headed into <laughs> January and which always comes right after Christmas. And, um, and I'm just kind of hoping that it'll, it'll help make things easy if people are trying to, to plan something for a book group around that time. It's wonderful. I was starting to think about ways that this could be used in church spiritual formation and personal is there seems like there's a lot of opportunities and just the way that it's laid out lends itself to to being a, a group resource as well as an individual resource. Well, we are so glad to have you spend some time with us and with our listeners. Congratulations again on getting to this finish line of launching your book. Um, and we really hope that our listeners will get up and pre-order and will continue to do this work of, of raising up children who can be good humans in the world and bringing together these intersections of food and faith and embodied theology. So thank you so much for the way that you're contributing to the world with your work. And we'll look forward to having you on the show again in the future. Wonderful. It was so great to talk with you both. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep and Tell. 
Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.